you open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. Alright, so last time we concluded a part of the chiasm. Remember the chiasm structure that we're in? There's A, B, C, and D. And we are now in D prime. So we're in the part that kind of mirrors D. Okay, so that's where we are in the structure. So Proverbs chapter 5. I'm going to try to get through 5 and 6 because I think they have major theme clusters. So let's read through. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol, place of the dead. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable. You do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one, lest aliens be filled with your wealth, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed, and say, How I have hated instruction, and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times, and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman, and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his steps." His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. My son, if you become a surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth, you are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, 
provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. Verse 12, this is a worthless person. Replace that with rebel or insurrectionist, and you will get the themes much more strongly. Okay, so, a worthless person, an insurrectionist, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart, he devises evil continually, he sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief. If he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving, yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. So chapter 5. We have an introduction again, calling for the hearing of the Son. My son, pay attention to my wisdom, lend your ears to my understanding, that you may preserve discretion, and your lips may keep knowledge. 
the wisdom of the Father, the understanding of the Father is being communicated again. The idea of discretion, being able to tell the difference between things, and the idea of keeping knowledge, the lips may keep knowledge, so the words of knowledge will come off of the mouth of the Son. Now, we immediately move from that to the lips of the immoral woman. The idea of what should be on the lips of the young man are words of knowledge. And we have the lips of the immoral woman. What does she speak? Well, her lips drip honey. The idea here is that there are words that are seductive words, and these things sound sweet. And there's, of course, also the idea of the seductress using kissing to draw in a man. And so, young men, any of you, the idea that you can kiss, and it's not a big deal, is a lie from the pit of hell. If you engage in sexual acts with women that are not particularly far along in your own mind, it is a danger and it is playing with fire. When you get started, it is difficult to stop. There is no place outside of marriage for sexual interaction. It is inappropriate. And so the idea of going from seductive talk to the beginning actions of seduction with kissing are both the danger here. Her mouth is smoother than oil. The idea of the smoothness of the words. And so these things are both, this is a sensual language that's meant to say, look, you find yourself, you see the advertisements, you see the billboards you deal with, you see the nonsense that you run into, you see the way in which our culture is filled with this filth. And you need to realize when you see this, when you see these things, when you see the picture perfect, all of this laid out to try to make it so that you are grabbed, you have got to stop yourself and say, this is a lie, this is a trap, and this is someone trying to bring me in with something that appears sweet and to destroy me. The dripping of honey refers to sweetness and the smoothness of oil. And it goes from there to the idea of the end. Right? We think... There's this beginning thought. There's the temptation of lust to say, there's something here that's pleasant. There's something here that's sweet. There's something here that's smooth. And then, that's the beginning. And the deception of that sin and the pleasantness of the beginnings, we have to realize that the end of the matter lasts much longer than the beginning and the sinful pleasure. The end of the matter is bitter as wormwood. The end of the matter is sharp as a two-edged sword. Smoothness versus sharpness, bitterness versus sweetness. Sexual sin brings destruction and death. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol. This is a place of the dead. It deadens the conscience it deadens your attention to things that ought to matter. It deadens your affections to the people you should have loyalty to. Sexual sin is destructive to the conscience and destructive to sensitivity to right and wrong and to the beauties of goodness. This warning is given so that you will not ponder her path of life and think, well, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe the short-term pleasures are worth it. There is an instability there. Now this warning, 
there is a common way of talking about the idea that good-looking women tend to seem kind of crazy. Have you heard that as a cultural thing? I'm sure you have. And the idea there is it's not good-looking women. You know what it is? It's women who dress inappropriately, who men are attracted to to try to pick up for short-term sexual gratification. That is the seductress. And that exposure of the self, of the body, is a display of the instability of the woman. And so this idea of the craziness, the instability of women who use sexuality to try to trap a man, they are unstable. Her ways are unstable. And they lead to destruction. The sharp contrast of sinful pleasure with all of the pain makes the instability all the more noticeable. And men become deadened in their consciences in the pursuit of ungodly sexual pleasure by deadening themselves to this and learning to play games. The culture has adopted this wholesale and college has largely become a playground for the development of harlotry and male hardening. And so there is this way that is unstable and the way is not knowable because there's an intentional game playing by wicked people and there's an enjoyment of demanding attention. The unstable and wicked woman is to be avoided and the principal sign of this instability is immodesty and her attempts to seduce you. So when you see women being immodest and seeking to seduce, that is a sign to you that there's crazy here and it will destroy you. Now, women, when you find yourself tempted to do that, that's a sign to you that there's crazy there and it needs to be resisted. And so you go, I need to be stable. I need to preserve modesty. I need to seek to preserve my own honor. And that displays stability of mind when you're able to avoid seeking to be the seductress. Women desire the attention of men. And women, sorry, and men desire that the woman give herself to the man. And so those two things, the weaknesses that we have, they play into each other. And so we have to be aware of those sin tendencies, and especially in the young, and seek to protect the young from not governing themselves in that. Verse 7, Therefore hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor, you could also translate it as vigor, to others. So the idea of don't give your strength to women. Give your strength to the service of God. You make your, your, your mission women, and you pursue that with your strength, it will consume your strength. It will be a waste. And it will lead to the further consumption of the strength of the instability. The idea... It's communicated is to remove your way, do not go near, 
We have to do things to prevent ourselves from going around temptation from the immoral woman. We have to take care to avoid that. Rules of propriety to behave ourselves, being careful to avoid situations that can lead into problems. And we also need to avoid the company of women who show themselves to be a problem. If you have, if there's some woman who inappropriately engages with you, what you need to do is you need to talk to somebody who is going to help you to deal with that appropriately and immediately deal with it. If there is a situation where something like that were to happen to me, where I was dealing with counseling or something, what I would immediately do is I would go and tell my wife and grab a man from the church to try to deal with it. You remove the problem. You immediately remove the problem. You start to deal with it, and you find a way of bringing somebody in. You eliminate the source of temptation. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Now, the cruel one here, the cruelty of the woman is hinted at, but also the cruelty of Satan. This idea that you are going to give your service over to ungrateful things, Satan and the seductress. And so there is this danger that you give away your strength, you give away your time, that there will not be gratitude to it, and you will not get the strength back. When you give your strength into a godly, righteous relationship, the fruit of that in part is children, which is why the idea of you know, the, the firstborn being the, the beginning of strength is talked about. So honorable relationship brings children as opposed to this giving of strength without fruit. The giving of time to the cruel one rather than building out a heritage to pass along. The giving of wealth to aliens as opposed to your own household. Labors that go to the house of the foreigner. So you think about this, the pointing here is to this idea of the alien or the foreigner are somebody outside of the house and potentially outside of the nation and outside of the covenant people. And so the immoral woman, there are obviously immoral women in the church. And there are obviously immoral women in our own households. Not our own households, for our own nation. I mean, our own nation. Um, idea of a foreigner. And so your goal as a father is to guard your household, to guard your children, your daughters in particular, from sexual immorality and from being seductress, but also from men who are predatory. And then your desire is to protect your wife and to make her feel as though she is protected and loved so that she is not tempted to give her love abroad. But this idea of the alien taking your wealth and the foreigner taking your labor, the pouring out of wealth in the pursuit of women who are not godly women, the pouring out of that can can be in the form of prostitution. It can be in the form of, of chasing women and trying to use wealth to, to pursue them. This is the waste. The amount of energy, effort, money, time that goes into the godless dating scene. Eleven, verse eleven. And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. The flesh being consumed because your time and your strength were eaten up. And the idea that your wealth has been eaten up. So all of your substance is gone. And you say, I have hated 
instruction, and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. So this being on the verge of total ruin in the assembly and congregation, this is referring to the idea not of the loss of wealth, because that's already been lost, it's been consumed. This is not talking about the loss of youth that's already been consumed. This is not talking about the loss of the labors or strength that's been consumed. The total ruin here is a destruction of reputation, but also, given the context of adultery, the capital punishment in the Old Testament for adultery, death in the assembly and congregation. That points also, of course, to excommunication. And so we have this idea of the public shame, the public catastrophe that comes from these secret pleasures. And so we think it's pleasant, we think it's enjoyable, we think it will be a secret, it will bring pain and suffering, and it will be public. On the last great day, all secret things will be public. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Now, the idea here, you should get married. You should get married young if you're not called to singleness. You should enjoy your wife. And you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You should guard your own fountain and not let it be spread abroad, but also be careful about that for other people. Nineteen, as a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For you, for why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? Advertising agencies have become very good at understanding which parts of women to uncover in order to try to get men to pay attention. And it is important that we not allow ourselves to gawk, to pay attention. What we have to do is we have to prepare ourselves by looking away. We have to make a covenant with our eyes like Job and seek to avoid thinking there. We have to seek to make it so that we are ready, if we are not married, to be able to give our sole attention to our wives when we are married. And we have to be also ready to make it so that we are able, while we're waiting, to avoid falling into that self-destructive death trap of the seductress. And women, you are trying to be a death trap if you are uncovering yourself. You are trying to exercise power. You are trying to destroy. And so, the covering of the self with modesty is an act of love and the self-control of the man and the avoidance of looking at immodesty and the seeking to remove oneself from a place of temptation is an act of love. These are two things, these are disciplines that must be maintained. 
And the idea that modesty is somehow wrong to talk about, one of the things that gets talked about in the culture is, okay, um, you know, men should just control themselves. Men should control themselves, and women should control themselves. They have a lust to be looked at. Women have a lust to be admired, and they should control themselves. And men have a lust to stare, and they ought to control themselves. Both people ought to control themselves. And so this feminist response that it's the patriarchy that wants you to wear clothes, yes, the patriarchy does want you to wear clothes. Put them on. Otherwise, you're going to marry or not get married. You're going to have a useless man. And what's going to happen is you're going to attract the kind of man you really wish you had. Verse chapter 6. Oh, I'm sorry, no. Chapter 5, verse 21. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Going back to the idea of publicity, the publicity of, of sexual shame that eventually becomes public, what there is also is the fact that God sees everything. So there's the publicity, but there's also the fact that God sees everything. He ponders all a man's paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. God plans that. God plans that. He uses sin to to chasten sin. He uses sin to chasten sin. And he causes sin to result in a trap for itself. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. So, the desire for instruction, the desire for discipline, helps to avoid death, And remember, the last reference to death that we had that was significant was her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of the place of the dead. So instruction helps us to avoid that. Self-control in general helps us to avoid particular traps of non-control, non-self-control. If we learn to govern ourselves well generally, it helps us in many particular areas. So instruction and training, then there's particular training for example, the averting of the eyes, the avoidance of meditating upon things that should not be meditated upon, the avoiding of temptation situations. So, a man shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. And we've read about the ways in which that results in great fall. Chapter 6, verse 1. My son... If you become a surety, now, we, now when we get to chapter 6, there's three major types of things. We're moving from, remember there's been this idea of the moral woman that's been emphasized, but there's also the foolish friends, right? And so now we move back into the foolish friends. There's making yourself a surety, guaranteeing debt for people. There's laziness. And there's insurrection or rebellion against lawful authority. And being one who seeks to bring about the destruction of loyalties that ought to be preserved. And then the chapter goes back to the danger of adultery. And so we've seen these themes. These have been the themes that are going on. And wisdom is the protection against adultery and the adulteress. What we just did, we went through in chapter 5, we just developed sales resistance. We were just looking at what are the things that are tempting in terms of the immoral woman and how do we interpret them to avoid that temptation. 
And how do we train our young women to avoid doing that? And how do we train our young men to avoid falling into that? And so there's a development of sales resistance by making aware of the danger. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And when you realize that these efforts of the seductress are to control, to exercise power over you, and you realize that she's not doing it for your good, the exercise of power by a cruel person, by a person seeking your harm, is something to be aware of. And so we move into this with the foolish friends, and we have the same thing. We begin to look at how to deal with sales resistance. One of the big temptations for giving surety, to give a promise to back something up, is the desire for that person's favor. And so you want the favor of a fool oftentimes, and so you promise to back something up to guarantee it. It's a lot harder to go and ask someone to release you from an obligation after you've made it than it is to just say no when they ask you to make the obligation in the first place. And so the training of going and asking to be released is a sort of development of sales resistance so you can say no when you're first asked. My son, if you become a surety for your friend, if you've shaken hands in pledge for a stranger... You are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. Okay, Being surety for a friend is one thing, and being surety for a stranger is another thing. These are going from bad to worse. Now, when you do it for a friend, there are times when you could guarantee something for a friend and it wouldn't be unwise. It would be when it's so small that you're fine with just paying it if you have to. The attitude you have to take is, if I'm giving a surety on something, you just assume it's not going to get paid. Can you deal with it? Would you be willing to just give the money to the person? That's the only way in which it would be reasonable for you to be a surety. Then, you go past the friend to the stranger, and what are you doing? What are you thinking? Who is this guy? A stranger? Sure, I'll cover your debt. What are you thinking? But sometimes we have that kind of silly willingness to do things for the sake of the approval of people. The more immature we are about our relationships, the more we're going to care about the approval of people we don't know. Think about the level of insecurity that that implies, right? When you care about the approval of people you don't know. But how many people do? How many people do care about the approval of people they don't know? Isn't that what the level of the adulation of the crowd is? making commitments to please the crowd. If you've shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. This is a snare, it's a trap. And so as soon as you said it, you should feel, oh no, it's a trap. You should, before you say it, start to think, I shouldn't say these words. If I say these words, I'll be stepping into a trap. You're taken by the words of your mouth. Snared, you're taken. Right? To be snared is one thing. To actually be caught is another. An animal could be snared in a trap and get away. Once it's snared, the fear is, oh no, I'm easier to catch. And then once you're taken. And so the idea this is a magnification. You're snared, you're taken. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you've come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. That humbling process 
asking to be released is painful. Even if the guy says, no, I won't release you, it's training, it's painful to help you to get out of it. It's going to help you to not do it in the future. It's training to not do it in the future. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. In other words, okay, you're tired, you want to go to sleep, too bad. Deal with this thing. This is a problem. This is a problem that's urgently needed to be dealt with. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And it goes back to the being snared and being taken. You've made yourself prey. And so this need to be careful about the promises that we make why are we making the promise? How does it advance the good? How does it advance our own economic interest? Does it do either of them? Is there some reason to make this commitment? So now we go to the lazy man. And so this idea of not liking work, not wanting to get started. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Right? This, the ant is something that the sluggard should think about because the ant is not a rational creature. And the sluggard at least would like to think of himself as a rational creature. And so thinking about the ant, what does the ant do? The ant doesn't have a captain, an overseer, or a ruler, to make her do her work. Oftentimes we desire external authority to cause us to do our work. But the purpose of external authority and the purpose of external discipline is to help us to have self-discipline, to be habituated to the performance of duties without external controls. And so the idea is that we want to be self-starters, not requiring a captain, an overseer, or a ruler to do our work. But instead, we want to provide our supplies in summer. Now, this idea of providing supplies in summer. The providing of supplies in summer, or bread in summer, is thinking about bread in the summer. The bread is not ready for harvest in summer. The idea of providing bread in summer is thinking ahead. Okay, you're lazy. Are you thinking about the end? Just like remember back with the adulterers who talked about how, okay, there's honey and there's oil and then there's bitterness and the sword. Well, you think, oh, summertime when the living's easy. That's only if you've worked in the time preparing for it. And the looking ahead to summer, the looking ahead to summer, and thinking about how can you be ready for the summer. Planning is work. Taking initiative to execute plans. And then when it's the time of opportunity, gathering her food in the harvest. Letting opportunities pass by when they're very profitable is foolish. You do not know when the next opportunity comes by. You do not know when you will make it so that you can great, get great, great gains in the next moment. 
You work hard when the opportunity is there. And that, you think about, there's a future that I'm preparing for. I'm going to use this opportunity to prepare for that. And so times when things are easy, people are tempted to say, this means I can work very little because it's so easy to get by. No, when it's easy, you store up and you build up and you invest. When things are hard, you will be well positioned and well provisioned. And you will be able to grow in power even more. Because when it's hard, other people don't have money. When it's hard, other people are unprepared. And those who make provision are the ones who are able to take the most advantage of that. In 2008, the people who had money, who had prepared, were able to make a killing. You work hard when it's easy to make money, when it's time for harvest, and you prepare, and you will look for the opportunities, and you will be able to take advantage of them. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? The idea here is, this questioning, in the context of the harvest, is, harvest has been going on for a while, so when are you going to wake up? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. The word for poverty here is not just like, you know, you don't have everything you want. The word is like a word for desolation, for emptiness. Okay, So this is like, you're not even going to have food. If you are lazy when there's opportunity, you won't have what you need. That total destitution will come upon you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. That need will be like a robber forcibly comes upon you and takes what you have. And so there's that danger of being a sluggard, being around sluggards, the temptation. So we think about the idea of putting our property at risk as a surety for others without gain, without reason to do so. Think about the idea of not working when there's opportunity and being lazy. And then we move into the rebel you remember early on we talked about that gang versus the family. The gang is rebellious and lazy and the gang is promising to provide for each other. We'll have a common purse. The gang is saying, let's do all this stuff. The funny thing is, this foolishness tends to come in packages. You get the whole set. It's kind of like you get the burger, and the fries, and the drink at very low cost. Up front, and it leads to death. And the interesting thing is those worthless guys tend to have immoral women around them. So it all comes together. An insurrectionist, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. Walks with a perverse mouth. He's walking around, and instead of saying truths out of the Bible while he walks by the way, discipling his children, he's saying 
perverse things. He's saying false things, evil things. As he walks by the way, he says false stuff. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. The knowing wink, the, the shuffling, you know, look over there, the kicking to make note of something, the idea of the pointing with the finger. It's all blameworthy. It's all meant to point out the negative. Right? This idea of, of making it so you're dissatisfied with the people around you, so you don't like them, so that you don't see the value in them. So it makes it so there's a sense of disloyalty there. It's the pulling down of other people in order to build up the loyalty to that person. So the person who wants insurrection and the destruction of loyalties and of the proper fifth commandment ordering of things wants to undermine all the people around. It's a mechanism for seeking to gain power. Perversity is in his heart. So we have eyes, feet, fingers, mouth, heart. He devises evil continually. What does he do with his heart? He devises evil. The idea of devising evil. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. Talked about the instability of the seductress. The insurrectionist man is unstable. He is desiring to create instability because he thinks he can gain power in the instability. But if you're familiar at all with the French Revolution or any of the Marxist revolutions, you find that a lot of the time the revolutionaries kill each other. So his calamity comes quickly because he creates instability around him. And suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates, and this all relates back to this idea of the insurrectionist. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. The literal wording here, haughty eyes. Okay, so it says a proud look, haughty eyes. We're going back to the idea of body member, body parts, and, and sort of like the earlier list had, had these things for the insurrectionist, had parts of the body went to the heart, right? So here we've got haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked, devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies. It's really, the who there is not present in the Hebrew. So it's really like a false witness that witnesses falsely. So that's one thing, and it's just this idea of their falsehood results in the false speaking, the inward falsehood. And one who sows discord among brethren. And so I think about the idea of coming coming into the church and seeking to encourage our hatreds of each other by pointing out all the negative things. i got lots of negative things you can point out. Somebody wants to wink at my negativity, that's great. There's lots of things you can wink at. You want to point at anything I'm doing badly, there's lots of stuff you can point at. You want to point your feet at something, lots of stuff that you can point at. Right? So you want to make me look bad, it's not going to be real hard. Just stick around for five minutes and find some things to point at. So we can do that with each other. We can make each other look bad pretty easily. And we can emphasize things. We can emphasize things we're annoyed about with each other. A person always does this thing. Look at them always doing that thing. There's the thing. And that is so easy to do and to make it so that people become caricatures of themselves. 
It's very effective. It's very effective in political campaigns. It's very effective in relationships. It's really easy to destroy stuff. One sinner can do a lot of destruction. And so we have to be on guard to the insurrectionist man, the rebellious man, the worthless person that seeks to increase their own value by tearing down the people around them. So we get to the last section of the chapter and we're back to the being aware of adultery. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Remember that from earlier? Bind them continually upon your heart. So this idea of putting the commandments in the heart. Tie them around your neck. So the outward behavior, but also again the hanging out over the heart. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. Remember that stuff being said about wisdom? For the commandment is a lamp. Like the law is a lamp unto the feet. And the law, a light. Lights, lamps, what they do is they help us to distinguish in the darkness. They, darkness prevents us from seeing the difference between things. Light allows us to see the difference between things. A, non-A. So we can determine the difference between good and evil. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Right? There's this the desire to be around discipline and to have people who are willing to rebuke you and point out what the law says. The desire to not throw off parents. To not throw off pastors. The power is a way of life because it keeps you from the way of death. It keeps you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress, right? The flattering words of the seductress, which are honey and oil, versus the pain initially of the rebuke. The rebuke, unlike, unlike the seductress's words, the rebuke hurts right now. It hurts right now. But in the end, it is a joyful thing. Whereas the sin brings pleasure right now. But in the end, it's a painful thing. The rebuke is the exact opposite. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. We have to be careful to not think about the immoral woman, to not think about the seductress in the sense of taking the images in and trying to meditate on them. We have to push them out with our minds. The thing we replace them with is meditating on the commandments of God, the law of God, the truth of God. And women, you're trying to create a culture where that is encouraged rather than using the body to try to control men. You seek instead to help to put the word on the walls on the doorpost and on the gates so that you help to make that the culture and you're helping to fill the minds of the men and boys with that. Nor let her allure you with her eyelids. The use of the eyes to try to, to draw in. Right? Think about, you can use eyes to get somebody's attention. I can take any one of you and stare at you for a while and I'll get you to kind of feel odd. Right? If I just stare at you long enough, you'll feel weird about it. And so you can do that if you're trying to seduce a person, the use of the eyes as a mechanism to draw attention and then to use that to draw other things. So the seductive look is a dangerous thing. 
And so you see art that has that in it. You see somebody dealing with you who's trying to do that. It's a danger sign. You beware. Now, this danger is particularly worse when you're dealing with somebody who's already married. Verse 26, For by means of a harlot a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Now, I think a better translation, frankly, is the idea that you can hire a harlot for what's basically the cost of a crust of bread, but adulteress is going to cost you your life. It's not commending the hiring of prostitution. But what it's saying is, don't be an idiot and go chase somebody's wife and try to take their wife. What you do is you say, look, this is sin. And this other sin that's obviously sin, the hiring of a prostitute, is bad too. But it's so much cheaper in terms of the destruction that it will bring. So why am I such an idiot? I'm not going to do that. Why would I do this? And so the idea of avoiding sin and the destructive value that if you chase somebody else's wife and seek to cause adultery to occur, that you're going to bring death on yourself. Um, This is a dangerous thing. A man cannot take fire into his bosom without his clothes being burned. He can't walk on coals without his feet being seared. So why would you think you can commit adultery with your neighbor's wife, touch her, and be innocent and get away with it? People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet, when he's found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Look, we don't like the idea of stealing bread, but people are more okay with somebody stealing bread to stay alive than they are with you trying to steal somebody's wife in order to satisfy lust. So the idea of satisfying the hunger for nutrition versus lust. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Okay, you steal, you're going to have to pay back the full amount. You have to do full restitution, a seven-fold restitution. If you're adultery, you're going to destroy your soul. And that's the hardening effects, the conscience-destroying elements. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. Right? Compare that to people aren't going to despise you if you steal a piece of bread. Is it commending stealing bread? No. But it's saying, look, you steal a piece of bread, nobody's going to go... Well, this is the worst guy ever. He was starving, okay. Shouldn't have done that. But committing adultery, destroy your own soul, you'll get wounds and dishonor. Your reproach won't be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. You will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. Now, again, with the context of the idea of the death penalty for adultery, the idea of you can get a lesser penalty if the victim agrees to take it. This is a thing where he's not going to take bribes because he's worried about looking like somebody who sold his honor. And so there's going to be this response where the guy feels like he can't take money as a lesser payment for the crime. And so there's this danger of the fact that his pride and his jealousy are going to be wrapped up and it's going to cost you your life. And so that's the theme over and over again of the idea that sexual sin leads to death. So comments, questions, objections from the voting members? Mr. Roberts. So on the 5-5, five five, shield placed to the dead. Yes. What, what is that shield? Is that... So in Greek, you'll see the word Hades. And in Hebrew, you have shield. And so the idea is that you have this sort of 
the place of the dead. So before the resurrection, the soul has to go someplace. And so there's two places. Uh, there's paradise and there's the place of torment. And so there's a separation of the elect and the reprobate after death, but we're awaiting the resurrection. After the resurrection, right, the soul is, is the spirit is returned to the body. There's a resurrection of the body. And so then there's the presence again on the earth. And so this idea of, of the, the place of waiting where the dead are. So until the resurrection, Hades or Sheol is where the spirit is waiting. Okay. Sure. Good thing. Sevenfold is the highest penalty that's ever listed. Sometimes people interpret sevenfold to mean uh, complete, like you know, seven meaning complete, as, as opposed to an incomplete number. And so they'll be like the complete restitution is the way they'll interpret it. So some people will say that the use of sevenfold for restitution is the highest possible restitution requirement. And other people will say that it just means complete up to what's the appropriate just requirement of the law. So whether that's a fourfold or, or whatever, uh, based upon those case laws and, and the principles drawn from them. So is it like an ox that takes a long time to replace and produces value in the meantime? Or like a sheep that's easier to replace but creates value while you hold on to it? You know, which multiple should be used? So I, I'm not sure which one is, is being meant here, uh, but does that, does that answer the question? Uh, yes. I don't think there's anywhere in the law that says seven times. I think there's four perhaps five at the most, but I don't think there's anything that says seven times, so I do think it's an exaggeration. Not, not in good form, up to completion. Okay, well, I haven't taken a position, I'm just saying yeah. that it's, it's one of those two. I'm, I'm confident that it's one of those two things. Okay. So I'm saying this is an example, this itself is a reference to sevenfold, right? So, so is it sevenfold symbolically or is it sevenfold as, as a maximum? There's no place that says anything higher than sevenfold for restitution. So this is a place. So you're, what you're saying is this would be the place that says sevenfold. I don't remember if there's another place. Okay. I'm just saying those are the two interpretations I'm aware of, and I'm not sure which one it is. Okay. Understood. Thank you. And then I, I wanted to make a comment that verses 16 through 18 actually talks about God eating people. I think that that's another helpful uh, reference against the defense of the fact that God actually Yeah, so the idea that uh, this shows God's hatred towards the wicked as opposed to just wickedness, you know, the idea that God you know, hates the sin but loves the sinner, which is an unbiblical idea. That's God hates the sin and loves the sinner if that sinner is elect. Um, but yes, so thank you for pointing that out. Okay, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless the teaching of your word, you would bless the administration of the Lord's Supper, that you would help us to grow in godliness, to resist sexual sin, and to resist 
the desire to please others foolishly and to give surety, resisting sluggardly behavior, lazy behavior. You help us to not be insurrectionists and destroyers of relationships, but to, to be those who seek to preserve godly relationship. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's sing. Actually, because of the shortness of time, I'm just going to not go to another psalm, and I'm going to give a blessing to those who will not be participating in the Lord's Supper. So grace to you and peace in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.